The only way that tyranny is prevented is a strong civil society that the state actually becomes concerned about. Hello there from Amsterdam. How are you all? Are you having a good week? Welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got an interview with Natalie Smolensky from the Texas Bitcoin Foundation. Now, Natalie wrote this article discussing CBDCs. Danny got hold of it, sent it to me, said, look, we need to make a show with Natalie. So while we're over in Austin, we invite her over to make a podcast and discuss the imminent threat that CBDCs present. But to be honest, the first hour or so, we didn't even get into that. We spent a lot of time discussing her history in studying anthropology and how that relates to Bitcoin, how she sees governance, how she sees the community. So it was a fascinating interview. Absolutely loved this. So I hope you enjoy it. I am in Amsterdam. I'm here for the Bitcoin conference. Excited to hang out with a bunch of Bitcoiners again. So that's going to be pretty cool. Apart from that, I hope you're having a great week. Hope you enjoy the interview. If you've got any questions about it, you can hit me up. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. All right. Good morning, Natalie. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, this this might be one of I think it might be one of the most important interviews I make not not only in this sprint but potentially this year. It's going to go if, if we talk about what I think we're going to talk about and these bloody flies are getting in the way. Um, <laughs> I, I think this is going to be a really important uh, interview to do. Uh, and the reason let me tell you the reason why. Yeah. About about six months ago, eight months ago, Danny will remind me because he'll remember. But uh, on Facebook, sometimes I put out content to yeah. my friends and family. And it's a very different audience from Twitter. Mm. Uh, it has to be very measured and uh, very careful to introduce some of the topics we talk about as Bitcoiners because um, it's a massive leap from their world to our world if they've got no experience to Bitcoin apart from hearing about it in the news. Right. And uh, Richie Sunak, who was our chancellor at the time, announced Bitcoin, the mm. idea that we would have a CBDC. Mm. And so I put out a Facebook message explaining why CBCs are dangerous, mm -hmm. bad, and we should reject them. And uh, one of my friend's mums said, I've had enough of your conspiracy theory nonsense and blocked me. Oh, no. Yeah. And so my main worry about CBDCs is that is something that a government is able to sleepwalk people into accepting without realizing the consequences. That's right. Because of the leap from from where we are to where they are. Yeah. You know, we've all gone through this you know, rabbit hole of learning about money and how money works and how currencies on blockchains work and how CBCs can be misused. So I'm just going to tee this up and say this is a really important interview because this is one I want to send out to my friends yeah. who aren't yet to head down the rabbit hole. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, so um, before we start, just uh, I think it would be useful just to give people a bit of your background, introduce yourself to the audience. Sure. Yeah, so um, my background is actually um, rather unusual in a number of respects. Um, I never really thought that I would... Uh, be working in technology. I was an anthropologist and historian uh, in a previous life. Um, I was focused on questions of social theory, political theory, um, you know, uh, anthropology of religion, um, how the state as such gets formed um, by human communities. Um, and then I ended up making a transition uh, into the business world uh, which I initially did through uh, marketing advertising uh, as a brand planner and then uh, started working as, at a software agency or a software company that um, built the very first Bitcoin-based digital identity wallet. 
Um, this is uh, a Dallas-based uh, company called Learning Machine. And um, we uh, built, uh, we basically launched a movement to build open standards for digital identity using Bitcoin as a secure anchor of trust. Um, and now that movement has, you know, adherence all over the world and many companies are building on these standards. Um, and so I felt very privileged to be at the birth of this movement. Um, I, I ended up um, being the, the business development leader for that company, um, spearheaded its exit to um, the company I currently work at in 2020. And I continue to do uh, basically scholarly work um, at the intersection of technology and society. So um, I've done a lot of policy stuff and you may be you know, familiar with uh, some of my work with the Texas uh, Blockchain Council, um, which I, I was the founding board chairman for um, in 2020. Um, earlier this year, I founded the Texas Bitcoin Foundation, which is a 501c3 that is dedicated to specifically research and education on the social and political ramifications of Bitcoin. So we have a lot of technologists working in this space. We have, you know, a lot of brilliant people. Um, and I think we have people with very strong convictions about the way the world should be. Um, those have to be systematically theorized. They have to be spelled out in a rigorous way um, that can be defended, um, but not just defended, that can offend, <laughs> can actually frame the conversation around who we should become uh, as a people and as a species. Okay, wow, lots to get into there. Uh, firstly, it feels like it would be a good time to align the brands of the Texas Blockchain Council and the Texas Bitcoin Foundation. So yeah. it'd be nice to have the Texas Bitcoin Council. <laughs> you know, I 100% agree <laughs> with you. Um, but I know the complexities. Yeah, are. yeah. This is one of the reasons that I actually created the, uh, the Texas uh, Bitcoin Foundation is because um, I think the, the Blockchain Council saw itself as more of a big tent organization, um, which I also think has value. Um, but there needed to be an organization that, you know, had this Bitcoin forward focus. And I wanted it to actually be a uh, 501c3 because Bitcoin's value is not, I mean, it goes so far beyond its existence as a token. Um, it is really a, a nodal point for reimagining the relationship between a state and society. And so there has to be an organization that can take that 30,000 foot view um, without, you know, getting into the nitty gritty of like specific political tactics and legislation, but that brings together people from uh, scholars from various disciplines um, who may not even have a point of view yet about Bitcoin, but can understand based on their expertise how it will change the world. I am in part just teasing Lee because I know he'll be listening. <laughs> Hi, Lee. Hope you're well, mate. Okay. Um, so I would be interested, therefore, with your background in anthropology and studying mm -hmm. you know, uh, society and political structures. What was your orange pill moment? Because for a lot of people, it's quite difficult when you first hear about Bitcoin. Everyone will tell you stories like, oh, I heard about it in 2012 and then ignored it. And then something yeah. happened in 2014, 15. And then I took another look and then I understood it. And then I really understood it. And over time, the conviction increases. We very, very rarely get somebody who says, you know what, I've been in Bitcoin for 10 years. I've I don't believe in it anymore. Yeah. That tends to be the journey. I, I'd be really interested in your kind of moment where you, your aha moment. Yeah. So I actually came to Bitcoin through digital identity. 
Um, you know, like I was mentioning earlier, the company uh, that I was with uh, actually partnered with MIT to build uh, something called Block Certs, um, which was the very first version of uh, what is now called verifiable credentials. Um, this enabled a movement that today is known as self-sovereign identity. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, coming as I did, my academic focus was a study of sovereignty. Um, and so I was very intrigued by this concept of self-sovereignty. Um, and what does that mean in a digital world? Uh, well, Bitcoin's value proposition um, involves being a censorship-resistant, peer-to-peer digital currency, internet-native digital money. Uh, what if we could do censorship-resistant, peer-to-peer, internet-native digital identity? Could that potentially be an antidote to the surveillance capitalism that has created this nexus of corporation and state that just encroach further and further upon our everyday lives without most people knowing, let alone giving consent. Or even approving and right. being sold on the, that this is good for them. This is exactly uh, the surveillance tech uh, protects us from terrorists and criminals and right. we need this. Um, I feel like there's become an acceptance that we don't really have privacy anymore. Yeah, no, it's it's effectively a moot concept. Yeah. Um, okay, and then yourself as, uh, again, as an anthropologist and somebody who's studied people and coming into a, a quite a, a diverse community, and when I say diverse, I mean in terms of uh, political opinions. Yeah. Some people loosely held, some strongly held, uh, quite... Um, vicious debates at times, yeah. disagreements, fights. How do you analyze, how do you kind of view the kind of subculture of Bitcoiners? Yeah, um, I, I think it's actually to be expected. No new fundamental technology, well, I don't want to say no because that's an absolute statement, but it is very rare that a fundamental technological innovation enters human society without being stewarded by a passionate subculture of people who uh, protect it, believe in it, um, and nurture it to the point where it's ready for mass adoption. So, you know, if you think about the origin of, you know, things like uh, uh, mathematics, geometry in ancient Greece, I mean, the, the Pythagoreans were literally a cult. Um, they were a religious uh, order that you had to have, you know, the right signs to enter the meetings and um, there was uh, a network of trust. There, there you know, is a long history of secret societies in Europe as kind of incubating uh, political movements, including things like the uh, American Revolutionary Movement. Um, and these were not like, you know, always the nicest, most approachable, like uh, most easygoing people. These were people with a point of view they understood the, um, the violence of the social structures that they were living am among, amongst, amidst, and also trying to change, and they understood the stakes. Um, and so it doesn't surprise me at all that the Bitcoin community is as it is. And in somebody who's also studied religion, yeah. are there similarities between how religions organize themselves and perhaps these subcultures do? Absolutely, yeah. In fact... Um, the, the term religion is a very fuzzy one. Um, it's very 
contested, you know, what it what exactly a religion is, how it differs from, say, a cult. Um, and in fact, the, the root word cult is where we get, you know, culture. Um, it's it's in some ways, a broader way of thinking about religion as a set of shared practices that are cultivated um, by groups of people over time. Um, and so religion is never static. It's always in motion towards something. There's a solving for that is happening collectively in these communities. And so when you talk about Bitcoin being a fundamental technology, yeah, how important do you see it? Um, I see it as critical. Um, I, I believe that Bitcoin has automated one of the central functions of the state, which is uh, the seniorage um, and uh, management of uh, money, of sound money. Um, this is traditionally, you know, has been a prerogative of the state and in the modern period, the central banks. This is not to say that there is no longer a role for the state or even for central banks. Um, but rather that there is now a particular function of these institutions that has been automated and made global and universal by design and default. And so there is no local, um, let's say, uh, jurisdiction that Bitcoin emanates from. It is a-jurisdictional. Um, that, that means a number of things. One, it's a kind of financial DMZ or demilitarized zone, hmm. um, which as we can see in a world of weaponized and politicized money, can actually be the precondition for uh, trade uh, between enemies um, because it is set up to be enemy money. Um, it is presumed that your counterparty in the transaction is someone you don't know and don't trust. Um, it also is something that anyone can make use of. So it is not the explicit purview of a favored class um, or, you know, <laughs> a Cantillon effect uh, of some kind. Um, so I think, I think initially, actually, what many nation states don't like about Bitcoin will be the very reason they come around to it, um, because they will recognize that they, they can benefit from its neutrality, um, not just lose out from its neutrality. Um, and, and then finally, you know, the, the importance of property. I mean, this is, this is one of those fundamental rights, you know, that the political theorists of the Enlightenment write about. And they often started with property because um, it is in some ways the clearest um, way of talking about ownership, ownness. In other words, what belongs to me um, versus, say, to someone else or to the community. Um, and that question, um, it's, it's never you know, defined with 100% certainty. There's always a debate about where the boundaries of ownness kind of end, um, like where uh, personal property uh, begins to transition. But nevertheless, if you don't have some sense of personal property at all, um, then you set individuals up for, uh, in effect, totalitarian control, whether that is um, the cage of norms which um, political science uh, scientists uh, Daron uh, Achimoglu uh, and James Robinson have written about, where, you know, the, the village, you know, lays claim to 
whatever it is you happen to possess or, you know, whatever fortune you have, um, nobody can rise too high because you're immediately cut down. That's a sort of more traditional small scale society approach um, to this. Or, you know, the uh, the modern totalitarian state where there is in, in in fact, no private property. And so anything you have can be confiscated at any time by the state. Um, and so these are extremes, but if you don't have a theory of private property, of ownness, then it's really hard to justify any other rights politically. Um, and so this is why Bitcoin is so important for the individual, because it actually um, enshrines in a material infrastructure a structure of ownership through ownership of private keys um, and the ability to use those private keys in a self-sovereign way to transact with anybody you choose. So that idea that uh, any of your property can be taken by a totalitarian state, mm -hmm. um, I understand that what you're getting there and the, the, the kind of states we're talking about. But at the same time, I'm from the UK, a Western liberal democracy. Right. But there are, I can imagine an, an instant scenario right now where mm -hmm. the, the state can take my property from me. And when I talk about my property, my home and my money. Right. So there are certain scenarios, say, for example, if I didn't pay tax, they mm -hmm. can go into my bank. They can go straight into my bank account and take that money right. directly from right. the bank. And I can't stop it. Right. But I can also see scenarios, say, if I perhaps I was involved in some kind of lawsuit, mm -hmm. which was uh, a lawsuit that was unfair, but I lost it and yeah. I had to pay the costs. I can have my home taken from me in those scenarios. Right. So how, how do you differentiate the two? Mm -hmm. Right. I think often um, these political labels like liberal democracy and totalitarian state are, uh, are used in very imprecise ways. Um, liberal democracy is used to describe the good states that we like and totalitarian state is used to describe the bad states that we don't like. What, Which are blurring now. Right. So what is, I mean, totalitarianism? There's, there's a history of, of theorizing it. Um, one could say that what characterizes totalitarianism is a certain type of not mere outward compliance with the law, but a demand that people inwardly be in agreement with the law. So it, it is not enough to obey. One must enthusiastically obey and enthusiastically encourage or coerce others to obey. Um, so it's a kind of colonization of the inner disposition of the human being that um, political theorists have described as totalitarian. Right. That said, whether or not the state is totalitarian in that regard, um, its ability to confiscate property, private property without repercussions, um, defines, uh, defines its ambit of sovereignty. And so what's interesting about um, self-sovereignty is it's, it's not saying this is the only category of sovereignty that can exist, but rather let's posit that the individual also has a form of sovereignty that is a counterpoint to the sovereignty of the state so that the jurisdiction of the state um, cannot be said to penetrate um, more than a certain degree into the lives of each individual. That is also privacy. Uh, so, you know, lo and behold, privacy, self-sovereignty, these, um, these are 
constituent components of a free society, a, a state that can confiscate property uh, with complete impunity could, the moment it flips to being totalitarian and demands that ideological conformity, do so without any, in effect, civil society pushback. Right. Okay. So when you when you think about this work that you're doing here with Bitcoin, yeah, and uh, you consider uh, political structures, what is the end goal? It, it, and can it be summed up quite simply? Uh, when I think of decentralization, when people compare Bitcoin and Ethereum, and they refer to both being as decentralized, some would say one's more decentralized than the other. I prefer to think of directionally mm-hmm. is is a blockchain, is a network becoming more or less decentralized. And I see as Bitcoin is constantly striving for more decentralization. And I see as Ethereum becoming more centralized. Mm. And that is how I differentiate the two. Is your work considered in a way where you're you're pushing for more freedom, avoiding heading down the totalitarian route? Can it be simplified like that? That's right. Preserving a free society. Okay. Um, Freedom is taken from us generally behind our backs and um, sometimes with our enthusiastic consent. Um, if we, if our theory of a good society is one that relies on people we agree with being in power, <laughs> that um, is a hierarchical social structure. That means we have to constantly work, often through violence, to ensure that the right people are in power at all times i.e. whoever, you know, we happen to agree with. Um, what if we actually remembered some of the lessons of Enlightenment era political theory, which is that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so how do you ensure power is not abused? It's not by making sure that the right people are in power. It's by setting power against itself, um, fragmenting it through separation of powers and then creating a system of checks and balances where no faction of power can rise too high. Um, That is ultimately what preserves a free society. What what we've seen happen instead is the consolidation of power in an elite faction of society. That's a kind of revolving door. private sector, public sector, um, executive branch, legislative branch, judicial branch, um, you know, uh, central banks, large banking institutions, large financial institutions, um, policy. And, and so in effect, this, this is a process that anthropologists have described again and again with regards to the collapse of complex societies. When the elites of a society um, become so entrenched um, and their interests uh, aligned, what, what ends up happening is that society begins lurching into this kind of top-down imbalance um, where the elites uh, colonize more and more of the resources of the society and the productive economy of the bottom part of the society can no longer sustain them um, materially. And so you have a growing elite class that like regulatory capture is just one of the ways it exerts its power. Um, But that is increasingly parasitic on the actual production of the bottom of the pyramid. Um, And at some point there's just resource limitations. You know, Lynn Alden has spoken often about uh, the energy supply crunch. 
Like there's. <laughs> I mean, we assume yeah. that in the UK. I mean, <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah. There's, there's so many bits of work that we've been doing recently that are kind of converging into this conversation. Yeah. Uh, I recently made a film that's about, I don't know, about two weeks away from being released where I went out to uh, study inflation in the, in the UK. Yeah. People understood about it. Post filming that, we've had an energy crisis in the UK. And the energy crisis has gone from the point of people expecting to pay maybe 1,000, 1,200 euro in energy costs to a predicted up to 6,000. The only way that's been protected is by the government borrowing massive amount of money to subsidize the energy costs. Right. At an individual and a business level, because businesses would have closed and people could not heat their homes, and we already have people living in poverty. Right. So we've had this crunch, at the, not only at the base of society, but also in the middle classes, because the middle class is so stretched that their disposable income doesn't stretch so far. Right. Add to that rising interest rates with people coming off fixed rate mortgages, we're expecting there's going to be a surplus of housing as people can't afford to pay for their homes. Right. That we also had a conversation yesterday with Ovik Roy. You know, mm-hmm. you know Ovik very well. Yeah, uh, love him. And uh, we were discussing uh, the cost of living crisis, which isn't just here, which is happening everywhere. Right. Everything you've just said to me kind of points to one of the things I'd made a note to Ovik about, um, and also harks back to a conversation I had with. Do you know Dominic Frisby? No. He's a he's a UK. Comedian, what would you call him? A comedian? Yeah, he's like a comedian, actor, political commentator, Bitcoiner, a bit all sorts. Yeah, (laughs) he's written a book on taxations and he made a very clear point. He said, and I'm paraphrasing him, but um, he said that we used to have a a society based on houses with one income. Yeah. And that you could afford a house and a car and a holiday and your kids. Right. We've now got, uh, we've now got uh, families where we've got two incomes where they can't maybe afford a house or can't afford to pay the bills. He said, we've had society stretch. And one of the things I, I wanted to say to Ovik is, you know, I talked to him about this uh, property, this place called Terminus House. It's in a mm. town called Harlow. It's a, it's one of the most deprived, 20 most deprived towns in the country. Mm. They're so short of social housing, they started turning old office blocks into blocks of social housing. Yeah. Essentially, the UK version of a favela. Yeah. Ghettoized. Right. Dangerous. I know we Office brought it up box. yesterday, Here but it's we, worth yeah, looking this at. Is it. It's, it's mm. shocking. Now, yeah. for me, it's shocking. Like, I, I, I'm from the UK. Despite what anyone thinks about uh, the UK, we have quite a civil society that, like, protects the most vulnerable and the poorest. We, yeah. we have a good social structure, whether it's with health or housing. But we get to the point where we're starting to house single parents and families alongside criminals mm-hmm. uh, into these environments, which are you know, burdened by poverty drugs this to me is a sign of a collapsing culture and a collapsing country which is happening on the back of massive gdp growth over the last two decades so everything <laughs> you've just said to me there right you've just pointed to that this is the elites right that have taken up the resources right which has left very little for those at the bottom and what yeah here we that's go that's inside that's inside yeah yeah. Now, look, it's not easy to house everybody who right. needs a home. But at the same time, it's, it, to me, it's just another signal of many signals that I'm seeing in that we have squeezed the poorest and we're squeezing the middle class out of being able just to function. Right, right. You're, you're absolutely right. Um, there, uh, one of the things we see, too, in late-stage societies or late-stage <clears throat> empires is the increased emphasis on rent-seeking 
um, as opposed to um, new productive growth. Um, and so what happens? You know, as the elites begin to feel the resource crunch, because they feel it too, um, even though, you know, they have more sort of padding, um, they begin to search for new sources of revenue. Um, and the easiest way to find new sources of revenue is to, um, to extract rents. Um, and so, you know, we've seen, we've seen rent-based business models, you know, everywhere, um, in, including in, in areas of the economy that are truly productive, like software. I mean, software as a service is now like the, the standard model. Um, you no longer can like perpetually own software. In effect, you have to pay a rent for it. I noticed that even recently with Microsoft Word. Yeah, yeah. I, went, I wanted yeah. Microsoft Word and it wanted me to, uh, to have a subscription. Exactly. I was like, hold on, I, I'm sure I used to pay like, I, I don't know the amount, 100 pounds, 50 pounds, whatever, and I would right. just own that software. Right, exactly. But yeah, so subscription, rent, you know, whatever it is, this is, this is part of what has um, uh, caused a boom in growth of certain industries. Uh, like real estate, like uh, software. Um, but it, it is also presenting a challenge um, because in effect it creates uh, ongoing sort of operating expenditure um, for the end user or, you know, the previously what we would have called the owner, but now it's the client or the customer. Um, and so this also kind of chips away at a, in a sense at the sense of property ownership. Like, what does it mean if I'm always renting my property? Um, what, what is my sphere of ownness that is, so to speak, inviolable? Where does that begin and end? You'll own nothing and be happy. Yeah. <laughs> well, and and is, this, is this why we've seen, or one of the reasons we've seen the likes of BlackRock, who now own, I think it's 80,000 properties, mm. and a lot of these big funds moving into owning properties on a scarce right. resource, which means there's less properties available for people to buy. It right. pushes up the price of the properties. It pushes up the prices of rents. Is that one of the reasons we've seen that? Certainly. I mean, if, so if you're looking to diversify um, in a world where, the productive economy is, you know, hitting some limits, um, then you're going to want to create areas of your portfolio that can collect rents on, you know, what is already built, what is already there. Um, and, and so this is where we get into the question of how do we actually grow the pie? Like, how do we move from a rent-seeking economy uh, to a more net new productive economy. And that actually appears to be a question of resource uh, abundance slash scarcity. So, um, you know, we can, we can have uh, a growing economy, but we need a certain type of energy subsidy for that, or not subsidy, supply uh, for that. Um, that energy crunch that is being experienced now throughout the world is constraining, you know, real GDP growth. It's going to constrain new industries. It's going to push down uh, rent extraction further and further um, into the pyramid. And so this, this is why, you know, uh, I think on the left in particular, um, which tends to be, you know, very concerned about uh, the poor, uh, the middle class, those who are economically struggling, um, there often is a real disconnect on this issue because they haven't thought about energy as the underpinning of all prosperity. And so there, there is an emphasis on redistribution, 
which, you know, you can debate uh, different redistribution models. But ultimately, if the pie isn't growing, then you're redistributing smaller and smaller units of value that are themselves losing value to more and more people, which is a recipe for a revolution. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I just want to go back a step. When you talked about the checks and balances on power, mm-hmm. um, and you may, you may not have an opinion on this, but I'd be interested in your thoughts on what's been happening in El Salvador with Nayib Bukele. Um, he's obviously become very popular with Bitcoiners because he's made Bitcoin legal tender. Mm-hmm. Um, he's also dismantled some of the uh, uh, checks and balances that would exist to, uh, on the power he has. Um, but at the same time, he's very popular. Yeah, and historically, it is a country that's had a massive issue with corruption, um, mm-hmm. uh, all the way through the various um, parts of the government. Where you know we have, I think, two of the previous presidents are in jail for stealing tens, if not hundreds, of millions. One fled to Nicaragua. One died mysteriously. Yeah. So, whilst the checks and balances existed, he yeah. has dismantled them. But he does feel like he is somebody who's trying to take El Salvador in a different direction. Right. Now, you may hear certain claims that he's just a populist, whatever. I don't really care. But how do you feel about somebody having that much power mm-hmm. and taking it into their own hands to consider, well, I need to, I need to extend my time. I need to have yeah. a second. T- how do you feel about what's happened there? Yeah, so... Um Political historians have written about this trap that um, countries can fall into. Um, I'm trying to remember the the term they used for it. It's something like the coup trap or something. But there are a number of countries around the world who have gone through these repeated cycles of coup, dictatorship, collapse, new coup, new dictatorship, collapse. And regularly Um, in South America? Um, I mean, yeah, on every continent almost. Um, And and so how do countries escape that trap? Um, I I suspect, you know, I want to extend to Bukele the good faith that he's um, trying to do what's best for his country. Uh, However, the challenge for uh, whoever ends up being in the dictator position post-coup and any type of radical consolidation of state power I would characterize as a coup Whoever's in that position um, then has the responsibility to build institutions that separate powers in practice and that can function without the the dictator, you know, without the personalist power of the intervention of that individual. And so that's always the question. Um, There have been, you know, military coups followed by dictatorships that have transitioned into truly democratic forms of governance. They just tend to be more rare because the work of building those institutions is very hard. <laughs> and, and is it also hard for someone to let go of power? Absolutely. What did, can you think of any examples where this has happened it's for my late night reading? Well, um, I, you know, I'm going to say the paradigmatic example is the American Revolution. Okay. Um, this, was, this was a violent military conflict um, that was, you know, won by an upstart colonial uh, country that was highly fragmented. I mean, we had basically multiple states who in effect saw themselves as multiple sovereign nations. Um, We really only won the war because we managed to finagle the support of France um, and, you know, then ended up with a country 
Um, and the, the consensus at the time was we need a king um, or we need someone who's going to basically function that way. Um, and it was, it was Washington's foresight to refuse that role um, that I think became an enduring model for representative democracy in the United States. So what, so he was offered that role? Yeah, he refused to be king. I mean, I feel like I've uh, studied a lot of American history post-Civil War, and uh, <laughs> I don't, I've never heard that. Have you heard that? No, but to be fair, it's not something I've, looked, I've like, yeah. studied very much. I, I yeah. just did not know that. So, right. what, so there was a consideration of the U.S. becoming a monarchy. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Right. Um, or, in effect, creating a, a president role that was no different okay. um, from a monarch in its, in its powers. Um, and this is, this is the problem now with the, the American presidency is that we've, we've been actually, we are now on the tail end of decades of con- consolidation of executive power um, that was even explicitly theorized by some as the theory of the unitary executive. Um, this was a, a reigning or prevailing theory explicitly during the um, George W. Bush administration that, you know, the, the president or the executive branch is, in effect, the governing branch, the sovereign branch of government. Um, and so today, the presidency does have, in effect, monarchical powers and even beyond monarchical powers, because in, in most constitutional we don't <laughs> monarchies, have any power anymore. like, yeah, they don't really have power anymore. Um, and so what is the electoral contest then? It's a constant contest of who will be king. Um, and you have some, you know, in effect, like our previous president, who explicitly was very comfortable with the idea of, you know, being president for life and, uh, in effect, doing away with the whole uh, show of electoral democracy. And so power consolidates. There, the, it, I, would, I would argue that the separation of powers um, in the United States um, was not able to sustain itself through the information revolution. Um, that after the Second World War, our global imperial posture um, and the rise of the internet uh, of communication technology um, so amplified our power um, that we, we actually, our institutions couldn't adapt fast enough. Um, and so this is now the challenge for whoever the American president's going to be. It's not just Bukele. It's like in this country, how are we going to refound our institutions so that we don't have like a really, really powerful version of Bukele who has the entire global su- surveillance and military apparatus at their command? This show is brought to you by Wasabi, who I will be now using to make sure my Bitcoin is private and I'm very excited about using their software. With the release of Wasabi 2.0, Bitcoin privacy is now effortless as the wallet has introduced privacy by default. Now, rather than having to choose to coin join, this can all be done automatically. So you just need to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can spend freely. Or the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement. You also get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi 2.0, so you don't leak your IP address. And there are no more minimum denominations, so you can coin join any amount, and there's no more change. So any amount you receive from a coin join is private. Privacy is something I've been taking more seriously recently. And with Wasabi 2.0, this has made it so much easier. So definitely go and check it out. If you want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T.io. Next up, it's Gemini. 
who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin, but I'm only ever buying. Come on, we're hodlers. We're not sellers. I'm also using the Gemini app for buying the dips, and I've been buying a lot of those recently. And I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy, and Gemini has invested in building industry-leading security since day one. Gemini are now also running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD, which is G-E-M-I-N-I dot com forward slash WBD. Next up is my new sponsors, the Texas Blockchain Council. Now, on November the 17th and 18th, the Texas Blockchain Council are putting on the Texas Blockchain Summit in Bitcoin country, Austin, Texas. Now, you know how much I love out there. I'm going to be attending. The event is two days of thought leadership for Bitcoin. Day one is all that any Texas Bitcoin miner could ask for. Top Bitcoin CEOs and their teams will be hanging out in Austin. And day two has top policy leaders from the US, both federal and state legislators, senators, House of Representatives, CFTC commissioners. What more could you ask for? Yes, I'm not just promoting this. I'll be attending the event in Austin, hanging out with my Texas Bitcoin buddies, and interviewing someone very important on stage. So make sure you book your ticket, come to the event, let's hang out. To find out more, head over to texasblockchainsummit.org and use the discount code PETERMC20 for a 20% discount at checkout and let them know that I sent you. This offer is valid until the end of October. Also, we have BCB Group. BCB Group provide online business banking services for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am a customer of BCB too. They heard about my difficulty with finding a payment services provider that understands Bitcoin and reached out to me. Now, BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, but they are expanding globally. They have an amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients and all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have had some trouble with this like me. And if you are looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you want to become a BCB customer. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. So how does that happen then? Because as somebody who travels to America a lot, big fan of the country, um, there is considerable political division right mm-hmm. now. We had, do you remember that one interview? We brought up this chart and it was, it would show um, the kind of uh, where they would be crossing the aisle on certain um, uh, issues and policies. And over time, it, it, it showed how there was like a blend of red and blue. And yeah. then over time, they're just two separate blocks. Right. And, and now there seems to be very little, apart from maybe in Bitcoin, which we saw with Gillibrand and Cynthia Lunamis, it appears to be very little things that people agree on and work on, and it's now just become us and them. The, right. the whole country appears to become us and them. Right. Is that part of the failure? Yes, it, it absolutely is. Yeah, here we go. I don't think it was actually it this wasn't chart, this one. but it's very similar. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and we can imagine, I mean, that 2014 graph is probably even more polarized now. Yeah, yeah definitely. And yeah, and, and, yeah. And it's sad to watch because... Um, I'm a, I'm, I've been a huge fan of uh, studying and understand what the forefathers try to do. And you know, I wouldn't ever try and explain it or explain my understanding. But the idea that these, this group of people tried to imagine a structure for the future that would protect against the individual attaining mm-hmm. too much power 
Yeah. Like what they foresaw and what they did for me was was brilliant. Yeah. But but America seems very very long way from that. And yeah. it's it's strange to be honest because we know how much you study as children the importance right. of the forefathers. Right. I remember it in kindergarten cop <laughs> when the kids step forward and yeah. they, they they talk of the forefathers like it's something I've always been aware of. And it feels like America has almost lost its Americanism about mm-hmm. that that it seems like the passion for the p- political parties become more important than the passion for the country. Exactly. Which requires, you know, conceding on certain things. And, and it doesn't feel like anyone wants to concede on anything anymore. Yeah, that, that's right. And where they do concede, they're, you know, they're often simply bought. Um, and so it's extremely crass. Um, this is why, so Bitcoin Magazine has um, uh, their new issues coming out soon. It's called the Orange Party issue. Hmm. And it's all about transcending this red versus blue political divide. Um, and I have an essay in there called, It is Time to Refound the American Republic. Yes. Um, where I make this exact argument. Um, we have actually lost sight of what made the American experiment great, liberty and justice for all, um, a kind of ethos of individual uh, ability to um, experiment, to fail, um, and to succeed. Um, That has become lost to considerations around policing both the world and domestically. Um, And so, you know, the model of the prison is increasingly becoming uh, a model for, you know, American social institutions, whether we're talking about schools or or workplaces or, um, you know, the (laughs) prisons themselves. Um, and then globally, there's a kind of commitment to projection of power for its own sake, um, where that sphere of ownness is no longer something we can define as a country. Instead, um, our leaders talk in terms of interests, American interests, but whose interests specifically in America? Um, and so in the congressional briefing on CBDCs, one of, one of the slides I showed was this growth of U.S. intelligence agencies over time, where, you know, the 20th century, particularly after the Second World War, just spawned this explosion of federal intelligence agencies. This is to say nothing of the actual, like, you know, executive branch and, and the police. Unconstitutionally? Well, often, um, I mean, that's always a question, right? Under the privilege of... Uh, or purview of some branch or, or some agency within the executive branch of government that said we're going to spin this up, um, and so they're not they're not a- accountable to the people certainly right. through the electoral process. They may through some chain of command report to the president, but whether the president even is aware of a lot of their activity is up for debate. Which sounds um, very deep state, <laughs> right? I mean, so so this is the thing the. Um, the American right, with its you know growing skepticism of the deep state and and its kind of what seems like a conspiratorial worldview, is actually beginning to speak the same language as many parts of the American left, which have been suspicious of the deployment of state institutions to prosecute you know activists, uh, journalists, you know pr- pretty much any like black person who happened to rise to any kind of fame or notoriety in, <laughs> in the United States. Um, so this is the thing, a, a default posture of let's use the state to solve whatever X problem is, is increasingly garnering bipartisan uh, disdain or suspicion. 
And that's where I think a new type of political coalition can be built with Bitcoiners, interestingly, as a kind of center for that. So when you talk about, sorry, just want to go back a second. You mentioned there the arrest and imprisonment or prosecution of journalists. Mm-hmm. Where has this been happening? Because the reason this comes to my mind is right now I'm personally to the uh, disappointment of uh, other, some other people, very critical of Vladimir Putin. Historically, uh, there's mm-hmm. been no, well very little free press in Russia. What was, what did exist yeah. was kicked out during right. the war. Um, and historically, certain journalists, they are... Uh, report on certain topics may end up falling out of buildings or with bullets in the back of the head. Yep. Um, something I've been very critical of. I, I support a free press. As much as we might hate the mainstream media, the entire press isn't CNN and Fox mm-hmm. News. And we do have good journalists out there. And I'd much rather yeah. have a free press with its faults than state press. Absolutely. Um, but where have journalists been targeted in the US? Um, it, you know... This actually is not my area of expertise, so I'm not going to name names. Um, But a pattern that I have seen is that journalists in the United States who begin to ask difficult questions um, about those in power, regardless of what level, you know, municipal, state, federal, um, begin to face difficulties, particularly around access. And so I would suggest that in the United States, the media has actually come to police itself, to self-censor. This happens in every, you know, repressive regime. The difference is that, you know, uh, unlike, say, in China, the U.S. media is not getting weekly communiques from the, the party about what talking points they need to hit in their press coverage this week. Um, that's a very direct, hands-on form of censorship and control that the U.S. government does not exercise. Instead, it becomes about um, celebrity, about access, about um, opportunities, speaking engagements, you know, book deals, um, promotional opportunities. And so this collusion or collision of the world of journalism with the world of celebrity entertainment has, from my point of view, removed the media writ large as an effective uh, sort of preserver protector of democracy in the United States. Instead, we have media factions who foment conflict and controversy to drive engagement, um, to drive ad dollars and revenue, and ultimately to drive access to elites. I mean, that's that's a, one of the failures of the internet. I can't remember. I think, was it uh, Andrea Santonopoulos wrote about this? One of the failures of the internet is in making the internet so free and easily accessible. Right. We destroy so many business models that relied on maybe subscriptions or, you know, if it's purchased in a newspaper, they've had to drive revenue through clicks. And if you drive revenue through clicks, you're incentivized for clickbait, which is kind of sad i think that, <laughs> i think that's so right on the press as well though I, like i think people think that there's some high like angry higher up telling people what to report on but it's, i from my experience i think it's definitely a cultural issue rather yeah. than that and it's i think the promotional opportunities is the most sort of obvious of that yeah. like you have to you have to work within the sort of the restrictions of your fellow workers and and they can be quite tight 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you have the social pressures totally. internally, which right. we know exists. Like, for example, a place like Twitter, mm-hmm. we know that exists. We, you know, we know it's Spotify it exists mm-hmm. because what happened when there was uh, the Joe Rogan controversy. Mm-hmm. We know Netflix existed when people yeah. walked out um, based on the uh, Dave Chappelle comedy show. We know we know this exists. You have the social pressures internally. Right. I, I would also argue that there are, uh, and some people won't like me for saying this, but there is self-censorship within the world of Bitcoin. Totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And... I wonder what your observation, again, you know, harping back to uh, anthropology background, is I feel like there is a uh, self-censorship that happens because there is a growing subculture around a specific set of beliefs and end goal. And if you step outside of that subculture, you can risk uh, being banished or having your career ruined, memed. I mean, we mm-hmm. saw what happened to Nick Carter. Mm-hmm. I fundamentally disagree with some of Nick Carter's points, but I consider him a friend. Right. And I will just discuss it with him. But there is a an attack culture within Bitcoin. And I have no doubt some people self-censor. Um, I'm not sure I do, do I? Um, <laughs> you wish I probably would more, don't you? <laughs> I don't know if you self-censor, but like I know for I've heard for a fact from other Bitcoiners things that they cannot say in public. Yeah, we've had that like private yeah. conversations where it's there is a another cryptocurrency they say that actually that is useful for this. I can't say it publicly mm. or certain beliefs uh, they have about political structures whereby maybe they think that you know, the government's natural or, or it's a good thing. Again, they're not going to say publicly. We prefer the opposite. We prefer to provoke. Right. Right. And not provoke for the sake Well, early on I maybe would provoke for the sake of it, but... Uh, sometimes I provoke because I want to see people's arguments. I want to see their colors. Uh, and this is why this show, anyone can come on, whether yeah. you are a libertarian or a progressive, whether you're a Bitcoiner or you're a full of crypto person. We'll have anyone yeah. on to have the full conversation. But that self-censorship exists within Bitcoin. And I can't figure out whether that is a good thing or a bad thing. Hmm. Half of me thinks it is a good thing because you have that tight core of people keeping Bitcoin and protecting Bitcoin. Yeah. That to me is super important because we've got to protect and nurture this technology. But at the same time, sometimes I feel like there's certain discussions that need happening, but they're off topic. Right. And then I also feel that certain opinions get to be held and disseminated and not challenged enough. Right. Um, uh, Climate change is an important one for me. Yeah. Right. And I feel like we are heading in a direction where a large group of people are now fundamentally disagreeing with the science hmm. and calling you're an idiot or a statist or a, you know a libtard if you follow the science if you agree with the science right and i understand where this comes from because they were told to follow the science with say vaccines which turned out there's some you know, complications around those but this self-censorship i've not figured out whether it's a good or bad thing yeah yeah no i i think um what ends up happening in most social communities is that um there's a certain amount of work that people are willing to do to nuance the consensus, but beyond that, they don't want to do the work. Um, And at that point is where you enter the realm of, or the Overton window sort of ends for whatever that community is. And so the question from my point of view is always, whatever the topic is that we are discussing, you know, is are the people I'm speaking with here fundamentally interested in truth or are they interested in policing a community boundary? Didn't we say the exact same thing yesterday? Just not as eloquently. Yeah, (laughs) not as eloquently. Well, I'm not as well educated. Um, Yeah, it's like, do you want truth or do you want confirmation? Right, right, exactly. Um, And often what ends up happening is that 
um, people just don't have, for whatever reason, they haven't had the language to fully express their point of view. And so they, they devolve into violence, um, linguistic violence and perhaps, you know, physical violence. But perhaps if they had the language to say, think in a more nuanced way about an issue, then you could have a more constructive conversation with them. Um, and mm. so fundamentally, you know, I'm, I'm an educator, like uh, I taught for a long time and I see part of my role within the Bitcoin community and within the United States as like introducing ways of talking about contentious topics that don't immediately need to devolve into a position in fact, not knowing something, not having an opinion about something should be the default position. We don't know most things about most things. Mm -hmm. And there's a particular, I think, um, culture in America, uh, in part because of our sort of global supremacy that we've inherited that, you know, not only our government, but like often American people feel like they need to have an opinion on every global conflict or like every major, you know, political issue. Um, and, and you don't. Same thing with social media. Like social media has given everyone a microphone, which is incredibly yep. empowering, but also you don't have to use it. And in fact, part, part of the work of character is knowing when to use it and when not to use it. <laughs> Are you speaking to me directly? <laughs> I feel no, like you're telling me. No, no. <laughs> no, and I, I know what you mean. Like, yeah. oh, I've, I've got a habit of doing that. I, I think having language is important as well, but I also think courage. Yeah, um, yeah and definitely. I, th I think uh, the courage to uh, admit you might be wrong. Right. The courage to apologize when you have been wrong, you know, yeah, publicly. Yeah. The courage to say, I could be wrong about this, tell me. Right. Yeah, I think, I th and I think there's a, a, I think it's a weakness of character to blindly follow a narrative of a subculture you're in without mm -hmm. challenging it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I think a lot of people lack that courage. And I, I don't know why that is. I don't know if this is like a uh, phenomenon that's come out of Twitter whereby you end up in these groups yeah. and you feel like you want to stick with your groups. Yeah. Um, I think audience capture is a massive issue. That yeah. exists as well. Definitely. Um, but I think I think language skills is one thing, but I would definitely put courage as equally important. And I yeah. just think that maybe doesn't exist. Absolutely. Because it's scary. Right. Well, uh, I think some people are afraid. Um, and then also, like, we need to be honest, violence is fun. Like, <laughs> I mean. a, a, lot of, a lot of people genuinely enjoy the process of attacking, of watching somebody else attack, get attacked, of, you know, amplifying the attacks, like violence is, Natalie Wynn has actually a great um, YouTube video. Who's Natalie Wynn? Uh, she's, she's a, a kind of leftist uh, YouTube star um, who created a channel called ContraPoints initially to respond to some of the right-wing content that was out okay. online and de-radicalize people who were going through the YouTube sort of meat grinder of oh, wow. like right-wing radicalization. Uh, have you listened to the New York Times series, the audio podcast? What was it called? It was called Rabbit Hole. And I think she Rabbit was Hole. mentioned in that. Was she? I think oh, so. Yeah, have yeah, you listened yeah. to that? Yeah. And that starts with that guy. Who's that? The guy who... We did the Bature show. Of, yeah. uh, uh, what's his Steph name? Stefan Molyneux. Yeah, that's it. Oh, yes. okay. And okay. the people... Uh, yeah. who kind of go down those rabbit holes and end up finding themselves in a whole new world. Like they find themselves a community, right. essentially a cult. Right. And uh, yeah, it's kind of super weird. Right. Yeah. So Natalie rose to fame, um, or I remember learning about her for the first time uh, when she did her episode on incels. 
Um, hmm. And she did another one uh, relatively recently on violence. Okay. Um, and uh, she, she's actually a philosophy or philosopher who decided to take philosophy to YouTube. Um, and the claim that she makes is like, look, guys, like violence is fun. Like people, people wouldn't be doing it so much if there wasn't some level of like hedonistic pleasure that we derive from it. Is, is it something that is uh, ingrained in us is in, in that uh, animals are violent, creatures mm-hmm. are violent, uh, you know, we survive, we have survived through violence. Mm-hmm. Um, is it something that is just part of us? I would, I would say yes. I would say there's actually an, an evolutionary trajectory that has rewarded a certain type of violence, both interpersonal and in-group, out-group violence. I mean, like our, uh, this example is often used, but one of our closest genetic relatives, the chimpanzees, you know, one of their uh, favorite forms of amusement for uh, male chimpanzees is to just like literally go out and hunt and kill outgroup males. Um, <laughs> and so there, there is a uh, <laughs> there is a way in which demarcating the social boundary of who's in and who's out um, is that's a violent act, um, and it's also a pleasurable act. Uh, and so people's commitment to truth can often be at odds with not only the the violence they anticipate, but also this pleasure that they want to derive from belonging and being able to exclude others. Are you aware of a film called Rise of the Wire Apes? No. That was mentioned to us yesterday. Came up last night. It was recommended to watch that. Huh. Huh. So that's apparently to do with the violence within. Yeah. Apes. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. I know, but you also see it like growing up. Every kid yeah. wanted to get Grand Theft Auto. Right. Uh, steal a car, pick up a prostitute and kill her. That's yeah. what they do again. <laughs> that's what everyone would do. And, right, right. And, you know, whenever you're watching you know, football, like our oh, football, soccer, when there's a fight on the pitch, all the officials come out and say, oh, what a disgrace. Right. Everyone's watching it's like, oh, that's fucking cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like during the World Cup, they, uh, I remember, no, the Euros in, gosh, what was it, Euro 2016, uh, the Russians are particularly violent and the mm. British are particularly mm. violent. They always tend to fight each other, but the Russians went full, let's go and fight everyone. Right. They, they destroyed were, towns and all yeah. sorts. It was, but remember the guy who had the he had the GoPro on? So you had this guy <laughs> running around, Mar- I think it was Marseille, <laughs> and just running up and punching. And like, it was entertainment. It was right. weird, yeah. but it was entertaining. It was almost right. Black Mirror-like, yeah. but it was entertaining. Right. So so how how have we learn to control and tame that because we are gradually becoming less violent. Yes. And I would make an argument, an uneducated argument, that perhaps in Europe we're a bit less violent than other hmm. places. Hmm. How, how has that been tamed? How have we controlled this? I, I always see, you know, things like violence. They're an expression of energy. They're an expression okay. of, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, the human life force. And so um, what tends to not work is simply pathologizing it, criminalizing it, punishing it, um, because that is actually a counterviolence. And so the person inclined toward violence then says, oh, okay, so violence is okay as long as I use it in this social policing kind of mode. Um, and so then this is why you often see, you know, the biggest bullies become the biggest enforcers of the law um, because it's just, a, uh, becomes a socially acceptable way for them to wield violence. Um, right. And so how, how does violence um, in, optimally get socialized? Well, um, it becomes directed towards 
uh, ends that in some way benefit the community, uh, whether that is hunting, um, bringing that, you know, food back or, you know, the, the violence of um, the slow, controlled social work that builds institutions. I mean, inst- human institutions are ways of controlling violence. Okay. Like, you go to work, you, you don't necessarily like everybody you work with. You don't necessarily agree with the way things are structured, but there is a kind of um, inertia that holds things together that enables you to, to achieve things together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the foundation of these institutions is violence. In right. fact, uh, there's a long history of political theory about the state and state building that that says, you know, the founding act of every state is violence. Like there is no law that pre-exists any given state that brings that state into existence because it is the state as an institution that becomes the condition for law. Hmm. Um, and no, so, that makes sense. yeah. And so it's always about what is the violence being directed toward, not is there violence? <laughs> and, and Robert Breedlove, I've made a show with him yeah. about this. He talks often about the logic of violence and that technology yeah. will change the logic of violence. And he right. has a belief that Bitcoin will change the logic of violence. Hmm. I don't know if you've looked at that. Um, there, yeah, there's been a lot of conversation I've seen um, on Twitter, particularly about uh, the relationship between Bitcoin and war, mm. um, especially, uh, but but also sometimes violence. Yeah, so I haven't bought the concept that uh, Bitcoin will end all wars. Mm-hmm. I just haven't bought that because yeah. war existed before. Yeah, certainly. Uh, common, uh, easily exchangeable money. Yeah. Uh, yeah and so yeah. I, I don't buy that idea. I understand the idea that uh, it changes the uh, potentially the industrial complex, mm-hmm. military industrial complex. It changes that ability to uh, fund war. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but you could just go to a scenario where war is funded by bonds again rather than deficit spending. Yeah, absolutely. So I, don't, I haven't fully bought that one. And that's like Alex Gladstein's point, isn't it? That it, yeah. it, it removes unjust war. Mm. Um, and because if you have to raise money from the people, they have to agree with what you're doing. So you can't have something like the Iraq situation. Yeah, mm. can't, yeah, can't do it through deficit. The existence as such of sound money does not, to your point, suddenly eliminate the existence of credit. So it's not a question of, you know, is Bitcoin um, a limited constrained supply for nation states, but rather how will nation states monetize Bitcoin? Um I mean, the the existence of gold never prevented war um, or or other, you know, hard commodity monies. Um, Rather, you know, states went through the predictable process of uh, minting coin, um, then, you know, summarily debasing the coin over time, you know, growing until they couldn't and until they were uh, literally conquered (laughs) or subjugated by another people who then became sovereign. Um, And so there is a parallel question of human institutions, political, social institutions that doesn't go away just because we now have Bitcoin. Hmm. Okay. I, I know we meant to begin on to CBDCs. Right. Um, there is another thing I want to ask you because yeah. there are, within the Bitcoin community, a lot of kind of anti-state people or libertarians. Right. And every time I sit and discuss with them, I've said this over and over, I fundamentally agree with them theoretically. Mm-hmm. Um, I am still, even at this current time, I'm a... Supporter of democracy. Yeah. Um, I feel 
it's strange. I mean, at the moment in the UK, I, I could not vote for Liz Truss mm-hmm. and I could not vote for Keir Starmer. There's no one I can vote for. We've lost yeah. anyone to believe and get behind because, and the, the reason is, it's not fundamentally the people themselves. The system itself is broken. Yeah. I know now that whoever comes into power is going to bring in more laws which reduce freedom and they're going to destroy the money further. I just, right. I just, I'm just accepting of that now. Right. But, I fundamentally agree theoretically with a lot of what the libertarians say. My problem is, is that I think, I think the state is a natural monopoly. And I worry if you bring or burn down the state and start again, you could end up with something worse. I mean, you've studied political structures. I, yeah. I assume you, you've studied why you get democracies in one country and you get totalitarianism in another country and mm. why that happens. My worry is that if we try and end or move on from democracy, we get something that's worse. Right. Without the checks and balances. Right. Well, and this is why I don't particularly care what people are against. What are they for? That's what interests me. Um, okay, you don't like democracy. Well, what is your positive political project? What What are you advocating for exactly? Anarchy? <laughs> yes, but then, but then the question becomes, what is anarchy? Is the family an anarchist unit? Um, families still have hierarchies. There are still people who are dependent and others who provision. Um, and so I actually think your your question is spot on. There's been a lot of um, sort of socialist, communist political theory in recent decades on the left. That's been kind of the main focus there. And then that, then more on the right, we've had um, you know, ethno-state um, theorizations. We've had uh, unitary executive. Ethno-state? Yeah. What's like, that? you know, um, basically racial kind of or or national supremacy arguments. Okay. That, you know, governments are for and by a particular people who are ethnically demarcated in, in these ways. Gosh. So like Dugan in Russia is a, a great example of this. Um, but, you know, there are also many proponents in other countries. Um so we've had these various political theories, um, but what we haven't consistently had uh, well theorized is an anarchist position. Like, what, is, what does that mean? Um, and so one of the th- interesting things that Bitcoin introduces into the, the political conversation is the notion of rules without rulers, um, a system that is designed to be self-sustaining and sort of self-maintaining um, in terms of its governance uh, procedure. So that is where, as a political theorist, I'm actually interested in doing some more work. Well, if you do it, please send it. Yeah. Because I'm interested in it. Because, again, I mean, I've spoken to anarchists and theoretically, everything they say, I, I agree with everything they say, but I, I don't agree with the reality of what will happen when you put humans in this position. And look, I'm not a smart person. Mm-hmm. I'm not eloquent like yourself. But I cannot, I can understand, or I do have basic questions, is, and I do ex- fully expect that hierarchy will come again. Mm-hmm. If you break hierarchy, new hierarchies will be built. Yeah. And will we create something worse? That's always what I worry about. Yes. And my expectation as humans is that we will. Yeah. Um, you know, we fought wars and for decades and centuries to have the freedoms we have. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel relatively free as a British person, I can travel freely. Yeah. I can I can I can stand outside down in street with a placard complaining about Liz Truss if I want. Right. I, I feel fairly free. Mm-hmm. I feel like my freedoms are shrinking, but yeah. I still feel fairly free. Right. 
I don't want I don't want to live in a Russia or a China, certainly not China. So I, f- I just feel like the the idea that it's become for someone to believe uh, support democracy that it that's pejorative is right madness to me. Right. No, exactly. Well, this is this is the question. Um do you um do you believe that communities should govern themselves? Okay. So now you have a group of people who are self-governing. A state. Uh, right. So what what is the mechanism by which they govern? Um, and, uh, you know, a monarchist might say, well, you know, one of them gets to be the king and then their, you know, heredity sort of rules or makes a certain, makes a certain amount of decisions on behalf of the collective. Others might say, well, you know, the most prosperous citizens should rule, um, uh, oligarchy. And, and actually I, I think that a lot of, um, people who publicly profess to be anarchists, um, or libertarians are crypto oligarchs. They actually believe that those who are the most, um, uh, powerful financial, financially, economically, they've kind of won. And so they, they get to make the rules, um, <laughs> which is not, uh, you know, certainly the system that I ascribe to. Then there are various flavors of, you know, democracy, the people rule, the demos rule. Well, who are the demos? Um, and how do you, uh, how do you position the demos in relationship to the elites? Um, because to your point, um, hierarchy is a social technology. It's one of the most primitive human social technologies. It arises as a way to streamline decision-making and coordinate social action at scale. Because if you have everybody making every decision about everything, um, the, the species dies out, the collective does nothing. Um, and so one of, one of the questions that the Texas Bitcoin Foundation is, is actually taking up um, is, uh, is precisely this question of governance. What is the relationship between state and society um, in, in a democracy and how does, how does scale impact that? You know, if you're governing a community of 150 people, which is the Dunbar number, mm-hmm. you know, you may have a very different form of government or self-government than if you're governing a state, a behemoth of a state with 400 million people like the United States. Um, and from my point of view, the larger the scale, the fewer decisions the state should make because they're so much more impactful um, and so much more likely to go wrong and negatively impact. And so this is one of the challenges of refounding American institutions is I think also relocalizing decision-making in local communities. Okay, so if you don't, if there isn't this refinding of institutions, what are the risks that you've identified for directionally where the USA is headed? Because it, it feels like, America, you know, it's the land of free, yeah. land of opportunity, land of economic opportunity, uh, an open, free, fair country mm-hmm. as a brand, mm-hmm. not always in reality. Yeah. Um, but it is also a surveillance state, mm-hmm. uh, as, as the UK is. And it feels like, directionally, it is mirroring what of, a lot of what it hates about China. Yeah, Absolutely. But doing it worse because it isn't a totalitarian <laughs> regime. That's right. So, and I've often thought, if America sees China as a threat, don't copy China and do it worse. Right. Beat China at freedom. Right. And therefore, CBDCs are the wrong answer. Right. 
Bitcoin to me is naturally the right answer. Right. Because it's a freedom technology. That's right. Yeah. No, and this is the argument that I make in the white paper uh-huh. um, on CBDCs is, you know, I, I start with this contrast between the American model of political economy ostensibly uh, from our past and then the Chinese model of political economy, not because China is actually unique in this regard, but because it is the new model that virtually every country in the world is adopting. Um, and that is a strong state that leads economic life, um, directs economic life, and also fully surveils the population. Um, and so the, the theory behind that is that if you have full surveillance, you no longer need democracy because the government can now know what you want based on your behaviors which can be funneled through, you know, a series of predictive analytic, you know, algorithms to tell the government what policies are favored and disfavored by the population. But do states sleepwalk into this or is there, is this centrally planned as this is, this will be best for our country? Uh, both. both. I would say a little bit of both. Um, I would say um, a lot of people do sleepwalk into it um, because they simply can't imagine the possibility that power could be misused, um, you know. And is, is technology one of the reasons this happens? Because yeah. you, know, you start to look at some of the worst in technology. If you, th- if you think during what happened with the COVID crisis, whether it's crisis or not, but with the consideration of uh, vaccine passports. Yeah. Now, obviously, you know, especially within our community, people rejected these passports, the idea that you could have to prove your health, you know, know, traveling across borders, which by the way, sometimes you have to do anyways, going Mm -hmm. into certain uh, jurisdictions, you have to have certain inoculations. But but that idea just was a step too far. But I can see how somebody within government thinks this is a good idea because they have the technology and it makes everything more efficient without fully considering what this actually means as a societal construct. Right, right. No, it, that's exactly right. Um, you know, we've had, we've had um, proof of vaccination requirements for a very long time, um, you know, in different social institutions at different scales, pretty much ever since vaccines were invented. Um, for example, it's very hard to enroll your child in a public school in, in the United States without having uh, proof of vaccination. The MMR. Do you have um, the MMR here? Uh, yeah. And a whole bunch of other stuff. Okay. Um, and so you have to like, you know, demonstrate that your child is not going to be a vector, uh, for other children, which I think, you know, at the level of that school is a very reasonable request to make. Um, the problem is when you then create a vaccine policy for 400 million people that is enforced, um, you know, to enter and exit borders mm. that is enforced, you know, in contexts where perhaps it has nothing to do with with the actual, you know, uh, purpose of that transaction or that interaction, and so it's the sort of AML KYCification yeah. <laughs> of everything, yeah, um, where there's no distinctions anymore between the information I need and the information I want. Just give me all the information. From the people behind Sportsbet.io, we have Bit Casino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino. Trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide, not only do they have cutting-edge security, but fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money cannot buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against others and 24-7 live chat support, 
BitCasino is definitely the best Bitcoin casino out there. And if you want to find out more, please head over to BitCasino.io, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award. That is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And remember, please gamble responsibly. Next up today, we have Ledin. Now from savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of holding today without selling their Bitcoin. With the recent events in the lending market, Ledin demonstrated that their robust risk management strategy was the right approach. They don't actively trade or invest in DeFi yield generation and have experienced zero losses as a result of their strategy. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. And not only Ledin are a sponsor, I am also a customer of theirs now. I am using their services. So if you want to find out more, please head over to Ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N.io. Next up, it's the Pacific Bitcoin Conference, hosted by Swan Bitcoin on November the 10th and 11th this year in sunny Los Angeles. Now, I've known Corey, Yan, and Brady for years, and they've been pulling out all the stops to make the Pacific Bitcoin Conference a celebration of the Bitcoin community. I'm going to be emceeing the conference alongside my friends Natalie Brunel and Stefan Levera, and there's going to be an incredible lineup of speakers, including Lynn Alden, Alex Gladstein, and Preston Pish. Now, Pacific Bitcoin is going to be the right mix of education and good fun with unique experiences. They've got a surfing simulator and loaded with other events and parties before and after the event. They're bringing the brightest minds in Bitcoin to discuss a range of topics from macro to nation estate adoption, mining and lightning. And you're not going to want to miss this inaugural Pacific Bitcoin conference. I know it's going to be a special event. Now, Swan are offering a huge 30% discount to listeners of the show. Just go to pacificbitcoin.com and use the code PETER at checkout. That is P-A-C-I-F-I-C-B-I-T-C-O-I-N.com and use the code PETER. Also today, we have Ledger. Now, recent events have highlighted just how important self-custody is. And Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you as a Bitcoiner to take control of your Bitcoin and the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger have recently announced the launch of the new Nano S+. The larger screen makes it easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions, and the Nano S+, maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. Now, I have been a Ledger customer since 2017, and I absolutely love the S+. Now, if you want to find out more, if you want to check this out, if you want to purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P, dot l-e-d-g-e-r dot com but see i see it with uh when i look at the chinese model yeah social credit scores i just see this as control the decisions based on control but i can see in kind of more western liberal democracies that it's done through naivety Mm -hmm. sometimes maybe control yeah but I, i can see how we sleepwalk in these decisions because the logic of the technology makes sense. Right. And I could I could come up with 10 different examples immediately of different ways where technology seems, you know, surveillance. You can make right. the argument for surveillance, uh, you know, in crime reduction. You know, in the UK, um, I listened to an interview with somebody who worked for MI6. Hmm. And they talked about all the different plots they foiled. And we've had terrorist plots. We had the uh, tube bombings. Uh, we had the failed tube bombings. We've had a number of knife attacks. We had the ones... Uh, Starting bu- on London Bridge. London Bridge, Borough yeah. Market. So we've had successful 
terrorist attacks right. where innocent people have died. I mean, it was, what was it, 52 on the... Uh, I think it was 52 on the um, the tube attacks and the Borough Market. I can't remember. 13, 14 people just stabbed to death. Right. And he was talking about how they use surveillance, uh, uh, both uh, technology, but actually uh, um, stationing uh, officers to track people and they yeah. follow people. It makes a very good argument for uh, the safety and protection of the country using technology. Mm-hmm. It's, an, it's an argument it's hard to disagree with. But that, when that comes to the point where everything is surveilled NSA right. standard, you know you can see how that's a problem. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what the right answer is. It's the ten most surveilled cities in the world, and they're all in China, apart from London. Well, don't they have? Didn't Neil send that article? They've like got fifty-five percent or something of all. Yeah, I tweeted about that yeah. recently. Hold on, London isn't in China. No, they're all in China, <laughs> apart from <laughs> apart from London. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's not that. a good list to be on, though. It yeah. is not a great list to be on. But we've right. always known we're one of the most. Yeah. But mm-hmm. also, at the same time, I'll give another example. Um, did you hear a couple of years ago, ago in the UK, a young girl called Sarah Everard was murdered? A blonde girl was murdered by a policeman. Oh, I think, yeah, I did hear about this. Yeah, so yeah. she was my friend. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, she worked for me. I had an advertising agency in London. She worked for me for five years, um, knew her very well. Huh. And when she went missing, my old business partner, Ollie, uh, messaged me and said, oh, um, Sarah's, Sarah's gone missing. Sarah Everard. And I was like, really? He said, yeah, she's not been seen for 24 hours. I was like, huh. So I had a friend who, phoned, who worked at the Met Police and I phoned him up and he explained me what was going to happen. Now, he was very clear, if she's not found within 24 hours, there's a very high chance she's been killed. Yeah. Okay. If she's been killed, you want the perpetrator to be caught. Right. You absolutely want that person to be caught because you don't want them to do this to somebody else. Right. The way he was caught was on the road he was on, there was a camera in the bus. Right. So buses now have cameras in them to protect the, the, the bus drivers. Right. They caught the moment where he had her at the side of the road. He was a policeman and he showed his uh, warrant card and he arrested her under the, um, something to do with the, the COVID act that she shouldn't have been out, she should have been home because we're on lockdown. We can avoid, we don't have to debate all the mm. lockdown rules. Yeah, the yeah. point being is, the, he was caught because of that camera, right. that moment. And what? not only did it capture him, it captured his car and his number plate. Right. They tracked the number plate to the car, the rental company that he rented it from and found him. Right. And, then, and he's now in jail. He's been given a full life sentence. Again, you can see, especially you know, young women in London mm-hmm. after that, would want there mm-hmm. to be cameras and surveillance because they yeah. might feel more protected. Yeah. And this is the area I find super tricky because right. I, I fully agree with that we, sh- we shouldn't be the most surveilled. I fully agree that we should des- deserve privacy. But I can also see, see the defense of why you would have these. Right, right. Exactly. And I don't know where to fall on this. Well, this is, this is why every city in the United States is investing um, significantly in camera technology and other surveillance tech. I mean, some of the biggest technology startups in the U.S. are surveillance technology startups. And the way that um, public consent for this is, uh, you know, to use Chomsky's word, manufactured, um, is uh, crime prevention and crime reduction. Um, And there's a lot of data that these companies can point to um, that the Chinese state can also point to. I mean, like the, uh, one of the uh, cities that I was reading about um, for this white paper um, installed, you know, a bunch of surveillance at an intersection where bicycles were regularly being stolen and, you know, bike thefts dropped to zero 
Um, so people want the ability to recover their property if it's stolen. They want the ability to, you know, find perpetrators of crimes. Um, that's all true. Uh, the question becomes, um, and, I, and I actually think this needs to be answered predominantly at a local level, is for the integrity of this community, um, what type of policing practices, and I would put surveillance under the umbrella of policing, what type of policing will be most effective? Can we have good surveillance then? Can, and we, can we separate it from what is an invasion of pr privacy? I think we absolutely can. Um, and the answer for that is going to be different in different communities. Right. And so this is also where we get into a very interesting question, uh, the difference between laws and norms. Norms are actually the social fabric the practices, the expectations, the values that hold society together. When you have a collapse of norms and you start relying on laws exclusively to police a society, that's a collapsed state. I would say that society it has collapsed. And this is what's happening at what we see in the United States, um, not just locally, but at the highest levels of government. Like there are things that presidents do that people routinely ask, well, can, can a president do that? Well, it's not illegal because nobody ever thought to legislate that because the thinking was that, that a president would comport themselves with a certain kind of character and, and adhere to certain norms. Um, if we can't assume shared norms, I would suggest we don't have a society. Um, and so the process of refounding, I think, starts at uh, the local level of understanding what are our shared norms in this community um, and then scales from there. Can you point to some of this breakdown being because of the failure of money? Is that one of the reasons? Mm -hmm. Because I know, for example, now my children will not be able to afford a home mm -hmm. at yeah. all. The only reason they're not going to be saddled with debt is because I'm not allowing them to, but yeah. plenty of their friends and peers will be. Yeah, And they have this expectation that they, they can't get on the ladder anymore. I've had yeah. this conversation with my son. Like, how, how do I even get to where you got? How do I get to a home? Like, I just, I just can't see it. And we know, we know there's this kind of uh, amongst you know, the youth, this is kind of like detachment from them between themselves and the way governance occurs. I mean, you've, didn't you yeah. talk about that in your article? Yeah. 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 So, like, what do we do about that? Yeah. Well, a big part of this is... Um, so some of this is structural. Yeah. Actually, most of it is structural. One of the markers of a declining or collapsing society is that the sphere of new economic activity shrinks. Right. Um, and when you're young and you, you know, are not capitalized, you're not very well resourced, what do you have to make your way in the world? You have your productive labor. And so you need places to be able to start. You need a, a, a zero point to start from. Um, in societies where those initial steps on the ladder are not available, typically what young people do is they exit. They go to other societies where they are available. And so, um, you know, there's a historian named Peter Turchin who has written about um, the colonization of the Americas, uh, and, and not just him, many other historians, in effect as the project of second and third sons of European nobility who were not inheriting the family fortunes and basically couldn't find anything else to do. Uh, they wanted to be 
the masters of something. They wanted to be property owners. They wanted to be wealthy. So where did they go? They went to the new world where they could, you know, conquer and... <laughs> well, we know uh, this happens. Like, uh, Danny, you might know this better than me, but like uh, places like Tonga, I mean, Lord, what's his name? Lord, Lord Fusatua. Yeah, he, mm. he talked, didn't he talk about the idea that th- there's no opportunity for, for, well, little opportunity for young people in Tonga. Mm. So they end up going to New Zealand and Australia. Yeah. Right. I know Ireland specifically has an issue outside of Dublin. My uh, father lives in Ireland. And uh, a lot of people there will, like one of his neighbor, both of their children have moved to Australia to mm-hmm. work because there's opportunity, because there's no work right. locally within uh, the area that they're from in Ireland. And a lot of people in Ireland will move to the UK to get jobs. Is that right. basically what you're talking about? Yeah, like yeah. that, you know, on the one hand, there's the magic of the frontier, which is yeah. kind of this open, uh, at least in the minds of, you know, those going there to make their fortunes, this open space where they can start from nothing. Um, as the frontiers close, then it becomes a question of how fast is the pie, the productive economy growing in areas where, um, it's growing quickly, then there are these zero points where people can enter in areas where it's stagnant or declining, they can't enter. Um, this is why we have to solve the energy problem. Yeah. Yeah. Well, (laughs) so I, I wonder it, does this problem occur because, because the state has interfered too much or not interfered enough. So when I say interfered too much, have they created too too many barriers for people for economic opportunity? Or thinking about the work that Ovic does, mm-hmm. have they not have they not created enough opportunity? Mm, yeah. And I don't know where and perhaps it's a mixture of both. Right. Um, you know, the the generation of uh, economic value is I would say most most successfully demonstrated by political economies that have um, that privilege a free market mm-hmm. um, with some amount of state intervention um, to enforce a set of shared uh, game conditions. Okay, so um, that is a thesis that is up for debate. Some would say no no state involvement whatsoever, Um, like markets truly, you know, unfettered. Others would say, no, the state must direct markets. This is the Chinese model. Mm -hmm. Um, And in terms of just sheer growth, you know, they they haven't been proven wrong. The question is how much of the value that the Chinese economy has generated over the past decades is actually piggybacking on the value generated in more free market societies. Um, so the technology, yeah. the innovation, the corporate forms that it, you know, gets born in the US and then picked up in China. Um, and so this is the thesis uh, or the argument that I make in the CBDC paper is like, we can see historical examples of this in the medieval period in Europe, where those, those local jurisdictions that adopted freer market norms um, then became innovation hubs that positively impacted even the authoritarian jurisdictions that were nearby um, because they created a rising tide. And so this is a balance. There isn't going to be one set of policy prescriptions for every community. Um, I think that every locale needs to answer this question for themselves. But broadly, the a, a, a inclination toward a, a freer market, uh, I think, has been shown 
to create bottom-up value much more effectively than a top-down model of state-driven growth. Excellent. Okay, so moving on to CBDCs. Yeah. We got there. 90, <laughs> nine, 90 minutes in. I think Danny promised you an interview that's less than an hour and a half. Uh, I'm, oh, no. I'm really enjoying this. Thank you. Yeah. Thank um, you. So think, considering the CBDCs, something we, again, seem to be sleepwalking into potentially, mm-hmm. what, what, we, what is at stake here? Yeah. I mean, at stake is, in CBDCs specifically, is the elimination of the last sphere of financial autonomy that remains, and that is physical cash. Um, you know, although the the Federal Reserve and the ECB have, you know, issued public statements to the effect that they're not... I carry physical cash always. Right. Do, do you know That's British not much good here, though. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I carry these. Nice. Should be replaced with the king soon. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. You should get one. Anyway, I sorry I interrupted you there. I, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's what's at stake, is the, the last non-KYC'd form of financial transacting is physical cash. And um, every CBDC design model has posited that full identification will be necessary um, f- to both receive CBDCs directly from the central bank and then to transact with them later on. Even without CBDCs, though, do you not see the elimination of physical cash? Um, I think, yeah, I think governments one way or another are going to work to eliminate it. I'll give you another example of why you can sleepwalk into this as well. Um, yeah. uh, do, do you know I own a football club? Yes. So, <laughs> so uh, I've actually had to start learning about running a part of a business's cash base. We have a bar and food and people come. And they can pay with Bitcoin, they can pay with a card or pay with cash. Yeah, Cash is a pain. Yeah. It's a real pain. You have to have a float. The float has to have the right amount of coins to give change. Right. And you have to count it and back. It's a pain. Everything that's paid on by the card is easy. Right. I can see why you sleepwalk into removing cash because it's easy. Exactly. People who don't think about money, don't think about surveillance, don't think about KYC, don't don't think about any of this because they've not been thrown down this Bitcoin rabbit hole, mm-hmm. which is the vast majority of people. Yeah. I can see how you sleepwalk into getting rid of cash. Yeah, 100%. I mean, this is how this is how the internet has come to be owned by a small group of of megacorps mm-hmm. is the convenience and ease of navigating uh, you know, TCPIP and HTTPS uh, through a platform that is very easy to use. It's beautiful that, you know, you know exactly where to click to do what. Um, that is how we've captured the world. The early internet was not this way. I mean, the early internet was peer-to-peer. Um, it was basically only nerds using it. Um, like they knew how to use this in a self-sovereign way. But as adoption scaled... And then as the web commercialized and became a new new platform for, for commerce, um, it had to get radically simpler um, so that anybody, regardless of their technical knowledge, could use the infrastructure. And so this is the challenge with Bitcoin. And people have said this over and over again. Um, it has to become uh, super easy to use in order to compete with these more centralized forms of money. Um, what is the um, what is the state of development of CBDCs within Russia and where is America currently at with this? You know, um, Russia has made announcements about it. I, I don't know where they are. Sorry, I meant China. Uh, it, yeah, in China, um, 
they've been piloting CBDCs in a number of cities. And mm-hmm. interestingly, they're running into the same challenge where people are like, well, money's already digital. Like I already use um, we we pay and Alipay for everything. So why do I have to use the CBDC now? And they're completely surveilled through Alipay and WePay. Right, anyway. exactly. And so this is part of my argument in the paper too, is the digital dollar banking system is already fully surveilled. So like, why do you need actual like digital cash that's a liability of the central bank? Why can't the commercial money <laughs> that's already fully surveilled uh, achieve this purpose? But uh, yeah, so China's, you know, uh, piloting it. Interestingly, they're not the furthest along. Um, A number of countries have already um, issued CBDCs, smaller countries. Um, Who particularly? uh, The Bahamas, uh, Eastern Caribbean, Nigeria, I believe. um, They're they're named uh, in the the paper. It's unclear to what extent they're actually being used. Okay. The U.S. is currently in the stage of moving from the research stage to the implementation stage. So it's a very tricky stage to be in. Um, The Federal Reserve, the Treasury, the White House Office for Science and Technology Policy have all released reports uh, about CBDCs. Um, You know, not not recommending them explicitly, but also not not recommending them and saying, if you were to design a CBDC, here are the requirements that it would have to meet. So in effect, they've created a blueprint for a CBDC, um, all the while saying, oh, no, don't, don't worry, we're not planning to actually do this. Um, we would need uh, a law from Congress. So, okay, so at least that part of the political process still functions. But Congress is on it. Um, so <laughs> there was uh, something called uh, the eCash bill that was introduced a few months ago by a group of senators, disappointingly, um, you know, including some members of the squad, um, to introduce, uh, to require the U.S. The squad. Yeah, the progressive, you know, uh, young female uh, congressional representation. What's the squad? Um, you know, AOC. Yeah, no, uh, no, but what's the and, name? Is that like a known name? Yeah, that, oh, okay. that's, that's the name for like um, her kind of coterie of, not just her, but like a group of young, progressive, democratic, uh, female uh, women of color who were elected to Congress See, over this, the past few years. This is one of the reasons, like uh, recently, we've been making a hard push on the show yeah. to have more uh, progressive leftist Bitcoiners right. on the show. We've had Jason Meyer, who's write, writing a book. We've had Logan Bollinger. Who else have we have? We've had loads. Haven't Mark we? Goodwin, I guess. But yeah. that was a little different but, show. But the point being is that you know, Bitcoin is uh, has mass awareness. Bitcoin is growing. It's certainly been adopted more by the conservatives and the right and then the progressives. And I've always seen America as the front line for Bitcoin. Right. If America accepts Bitcoin, if America uses Bitcoin, a lot of the world will follow. Yeah. If America rejects Bitcoin, there's there's a big incentive for other states to reject it. So it's really super important for me. Uh, Rather than focus on what you hate people on the left for right. or think libs of TikTok represents every progressive in America, <laughs> which it clearly doesn't, which yeah. is a small minority of morons, like you right. get a small minority of morons on the right. We should accept Bitcoin is coming. Yep. We should accept progressives are going to see Bitcoin and we should be explaining to them why they should care about it. Yep. This is why we were so keen to have Jason on because Jason is writing the book, A Progressive Case for Bitcoin. Mm. We should embrace this. This is yeah. good for Bitcoin. This is good for everyone else, which means 
that you have, rather than, you know, what tends to happen when you see someone like AOC, well, no, specifically Elizabeth Warren tweet something about Bitcoin, which is fundamentally wrong, you see all these progressives underneath the green with her and yeah. saying the same. I think we have to do a much better job of actually educating these people about Bitcoin, not, you know, which I'm a hypocrite, not say have fun being poor, not calling them libtards, actually yeah. introducing them and say, no, no, look at how Bitcoin can uh, improve wealth equality. Look right. how Bitcoin can create more inclusion. Mm-hmm. Look how Bitcoin can help mitigate against climate change. We should be doing that work. Right, right. Because of the squad. Right. No, I, I 100% agree. Um, in fact, I had invited uh, them to the Texas uh, Blockchain Summit. Are they so maybe, coming? Maybe, no, uh, but maybe one of these years they'll they'll decide to. Um, I, think, I think the challenge is that um, the... The progressive left has embraced a kind of redistributionist politics that incentivizes them at this moment to welcome CBDCs because what they want is uh, direct Fed accounts for every American. They want to press a button. Yeah, they want to be able to press a button and have the stimulus just pop up in your account. No checks, no things getting lost, no things getting stolen, like everything can just be seamlessly uh, redistributed that way. Conditions on what you can spend the money on. But this is the problem, because if you create this structure, um, money giveth, you've also now created the rails for taketh away. So now you can put, you know, a negative 2% interest rate on that uh, Fed account and say, you just spend that. Right. You better spend that before it runs out. Um, And that negative 2%, I mean, can be deducted at any time interval. It could be daily, it could be weekly, it could be monthly, it could be yearly, it, whatever. And you can't buy beer with that. You can't buy beer with it. You can't you can't shop at this store because, you know, they're uh, flagged as a terrorist risk. You can't, you know, go here because the owner of this is like under investigation for X, Y, or Z. And so suddenly you've created, in effect, a company store um, out of the entire American economy. Uh, yes. Uh, what happens to, sorry, I was about to say something, but what happens to the likes of Visa or MasterCard in these scenarios of the CBDC? They will become like, most likely, um, if, if a CBDC gets rolled out in the United States, it will use the commercial banking sector and, um, the established credit card companies as payment rails. Because one, one of the things that scares me or scares me, but I don't like about the CBDC that I think other people haven't thought about is it's a good thing that the financial system is fractured. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes the banks go down. Sometimes American Express goes down. Like if I'm going to pay and MasterCard's gone down, right. I can go to cash right. or I can go to my Amex. Exactly. I've got all these, I've got Bitcoin, physical cash, right. MasterCard, Visa, American right. Express. Anything can break and I've got something else I can use. If we have one blockchain controlling money, which by the way, (laughs) I'm not even sure they can can technically do this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, And uh, and it's built on Solano. We know like every other week it's going to, it's going to stop working. And then the whole financial right. system collapses. Right. No, exactly. And this was one of the examples I gave with the, uh, the Eastern Caribbean's uh, implementation of their CBDC, Dcash, um, where it just, it just went down for a few months, either earlier this year, <coughs> 2021. And it was because, you know, they used a Hyperledger Fabric uh, private blockchain implementation and just whoever's job it was didn't uh, update the SSL certificate 
I mean, <laughs> so it's for, so like, fucking stupid, isn't like it? For like two months, the entire CBDC was unusable. But it's so stupid. Yeah. Um, and this is why governments are likely, what they're going to do is they're going to, uh, the contract out to the private sector. So the Bank, Bank of International Settlements, BIS, um, has been partnering with the Swiss National Bank um, and a company called Six, which is a banking consortium that has built a private blockchain ledger to pilot CBDCs. Um, now, they're very quick to say, this doesn't mean Switzerland is rolling out a CBDC. Don't get any weird ideas. But they have demos, they have presentations, they've written papers about it. Um, and so, you know, what's happening in the U.S. is, you know, Amazon is positioning their uh, blockchain as a service offering, at, you know, particularly to the ECB with, um, with uh, major global uh, software vendors positioning themselves as the implementers of this. And so what's gonna happen is private software companies are likely going to deliver and maintain the currency of the realm. How does that really sit from a constitutionality, political theory standpoint? I don't know. Danny, did I ever tell you about when MasterCard got in touch to sponsor the podcast? I, I think you did, but you should tell the story. Yeah, so we had MasterCard reach out to sponsor the podcast. Huh. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Well, okay. it's the old world, but I mean, I use MasterCard. I mean, right. what is it you want to promote? And they, they had a couple of things and they said, oh, and we want to advertise that we are ready for CBDCs. And oh. I was like, are you aware my show is a Bitcoin show? <laughs> Do you know what we think of CBDCs? Yeah. Uh, so that, that never really went ahead. Yeah. Um, okay, so we all understand the threat. Yeah. Um, what can we do about this? Like, what are you doing? What What do you want people to Just listen? going back to that, does that not highlight how even MasterCard aren't aware of what this might be? I just don't yeah. think most people consider it. Right. Mm. Because I think people are so conditioned now to being surveilled financially. Yeah. I expect every single transaction I do through my bank account to be surveilled. 100%. Right. I expect the bank to give that information willingly. I know the bank look at it themselves because yeah. I lost a bank account because they phoned me up to ask me about my payments, I told them to fuck off. It's none of their business. <laughs> I was I had my account closed down, so yeah. I know they're doing it. I know the government is. I know. Yeah. I know. I know to have privacy, we have to take it into our own hands. I'm not particularly great at, it, but that's why I always have cash. Because mm-hmm. there's certain things I just don't want to be tracked for. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think they sleepwalk into it. Yeah. I think yeah. someone like Mastercard think, oh, this is a new innovation that's coming. This is great for people. Oh, this is blockchain. Ooh. Yeah. You know, I think I think they sleepwalk into yeah. it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so people are listening to this. Uh, kind of, what message do you want to get across to them? And are you trying to are you trying to create action? Do you want action from people? Do you want support? What is it you're, you you know? What do you want to get out of this? Yeah, absolutely. How, how can we help? The only way that tyranny is prevented is a strong civil society that the state actually becomes concerned about. And so what we need institutions. Yes. What we need is massive pushback from the American people against CBDCs. That means writing, calling your um, congressman, your senator, um, any any, you know, media outlet that is willing to publish letters to the editor or op eds talking about it on your blogs, on social media. Um, There has to be a political price for implementing this policy in the United States. And um, this is, you know, one of the things that, you know, I write about in the beginning of the paper is this disturbing tendency that we've seen among the American electorate to continue voting for people 
who, uh, you know, further the surveillance state, as long as, you know, we like one of their policies on something else or their identity, um, you know, who they are. Um, the problem with that is that if everyone we're voting for um, continues consolidating state power, eventually there will be nothing to vote for. Um, the problem you were describing, who am I going to vote for? Who actually represents me on this roster? I mean, this is a problem, I think, in most political jurisdictions. So it feels like to me that one of the most important things to do is break this political war, this partisan yep. problem that America, like we've got it growing in the UK, but it's not as bad. But that, mm -hmm. like this specific partisan problem you have here, you've got to break that. And then you, with that, you've got to have stronger leaders. And you, It's like, how do you bring, you kind of got to bring people together, which Bitcoin does. Right. That's the idea, right? Right. The Orange Party. Right. But you're not going to get an Orange Party tomorrow. And the, you know, Brett Weinstein, I think it was, who tried to attempt to do uh, a party, which would, uh, what was it called? The I can't remember what it was called. It got called, banned on Twitter and they tried to bring together, like, um, it was Andrew Yang on one side and it was a Republican on the other side. But, but yeah, I mean, it's everything like you're speaking the same language as me. Every problem that you've seen, I'm seeing. I just don't know how it happens. Yeah. Like, I feel like we need strong leaders. Have you got any allies? I mean, I know Texas Blockchain Council are very good. They've got mm -hmm. good relationships with people in D.C. Have you got allies? Absolutely. So last week, um, I did a congressional briefing for, for the U.S. Congress. And... Um, Representative Tom Emmer from Minnesota. How was that, by the way? Uh, Were you nervous? You know. Or did you nail it? Maybe a little, but I think I nailed it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Representative Tom Emmer uh, gave the opening remarks, and he he actually was the first to introduce a bill uh, to prohibit the Federal Reserve from launching a, a CBDC in the United States. Oh, so we like this guy. Um, so, yeah. So it was about We as spoke good to him about coming on the show. Really? Mm -hmm. mm. He's a senator. Yeah. Uh, uh, Congress, Congress, yeah, yeah. For which Minnesota? Huh. Yeah. So we'll try and get him. Yeah. Mm. Well, we can get him. We'll, we'll get him. Yeah. I'll tell you who else lives in Minnesota soon because we go up there. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, but um, he would. You know, he's a fantastic ally. And then only a couple of months later, Texas Senator Ted Cruz uh -huh. introduced a companion bill in the Senate. That's basically the same language as Emmer's language, but in the Senate. And so that suggests that there is momentum against a CBDC. Uh, I know Cruz is, but is Tom a Republican as well? He is. And this is the challenge. The yeah. e-cash bill is all Democrats. Um, and so the partisan narrative that has emerged around money is one of the walls that we in the Bitcoin community need to actually seek to break down. Right. Yeah. Okay. So... A nation cannot survive without ideas. This is the premise for the Texas Bitcoin Foundation. It's great to do policy work. Um, it's great to build businesses. Um, but you can do that even under authoritarian regimes. Like <laughs> mm. the, the thing that makes America a free country is the ideas that are embodied in these um, activities. And so in order to have ideas that are worth building on, um, we need institutions like the Texas Bitcoin Foundation um, to do that work. And so what I would invite your audience to do um, is if they are so inclined to make a donation 
to the Texas Bitcoin Foundation. We're a 501c3, it's fully tax deductible. Instead of giving more money to the behemoth of the state, perhaps give it to uh, a charity that is doing this research. Because what we'd like to do next year is put on events that are interdisciplinary with historians, anthropologists, sociologists, um, political scientists, economists, bringing people together across the political divides within academia itself, because it's not just the broader society. Like the social sciences are often completely, you know, politically different from the hard sciences. And so we need to have these theoretical conversations. Um, and we, we're going to start small, you know, we're going to have some, some small events in Austin. Um, but if we can raise, you know, even twenty, thirty thousand dollars like that'll help get these scholars here and having these right conversations. So twenty, thirty thousand dollars what funds you for how long? Or, or funds one event? Yeah, it'll fund, you know, one event. Okay. Maybe two events. Okay. Well we'll yeah. make a donation. Oh, well of course. Fantastic. Uh, so um give us the details afterwards okay. uh, and we will support what you're doing. Yeah. Uh, I've loved this, honestly. Yeah. I've absolutely loved this. And Danny, Danny said to me a while ago, "Was this the one you were most looking forward to on the trip?" I think so. Yeah. Yeah. He oh. was like, he was like, I cannot wait for you to speak to Natalie. He said because oh, yeah. he knows the type of interviews I really like. Yeah. And um, I knew I'd enjoy this. Uh, you are welcome back on the show whenever you like. Um, I'm sure there's a range of subjects we can get into. Yes. From the history of things you've discussed, we could probably even not even discuss Bitcoin. Uh, yeah. But I love this. Uh, we will we will make a donation. Uh, t tell people where to follow you and to find out more information. Yeah, so um, txbitcoinfoundation.org, that's the website. And then I'm on Twitter at N Smolensky. Okay, right. Yeah. We'll put that all in the show notes. Um, send us the details. And yeah, whenever you want to come back, let us know. We'll be back here in January. January. Let's make another show in January. I'd love to uh, sit do down it. and talk with you again. When have you got to leave? Um, this afternoon. What time? My flight's at like 3.30, I want to uh, say. Um, you can come for the first half. You can come for the first half. <laughs> yes. <yeah. laughs> All right. Well, listen, look, good luck. Stay in touch. Anything we can do, reach out to Daniel or me. We will help you. And yeah, let's do this again in January. Thank you so much. I love that. Thank you. Okay. What did you make of that? Did you enjoy that? I think Natalie is amazing. That was such an incredible interview to do. I really enjoyed getting into the anthropology side of things because I always take an interest in governance and how communities work. So that was very cool. I'm hoping to get her back on the show again next time I'm out in America. So hopefully we will make that happen. Anyway, I'm here in Amsterdam. I'm here for the Bitcoin conference. Again, Bitcoin Magazine have done an amazing job putting this on. I'm absolutely loving it. It's been great to catch up with some people last night. I'm looking forward to seeing all the speakers today. It's going to be a great day. I hope some of you are here. If you are, please do come over and say hello. All right, enjoy the rest of your week, and I'll see you on Friday. If you've got any questions about this show or anything else, please feel free to reach out to me on hello at whatbitcoindid.com.